0: The qualities that that made, you know, the best players 10 years ago, the best players, the majority of those are still needed um, and, and still have a lot of value in today's game. And, and And solvers are just another tool. I mean, you know, trackers were a tool, equity calculators were a tool.
1: Hi and welcome, it's Runchex and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around poker industry. Today my guest is Phil Galfond, one of the very few people in the poker world who doesn't require an introduction. We talk about what qualities make Phil a great poker player, what's his decision-making process like, How does he think through the hand, how does he handle the stress and of course, how does Phil see the future of the online poker? What are some of the biggest dangers that the industry is facing and what can poker sites do to overcome those? And yes, we also talk about the Galphon Challenge. So far, Phil finished and won two of them. We dig deeper into how Phil managed to overcome the huge early downswing against Veni Vidi to come out on top. And there's so much more. I hope you will enjoy this conversation.
0: Phil, so happy to have you on. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, uh, for those watching, you've you've been uh, asking me to come on for a while. I agreed to it a long time ago, and then I kept uh, being busy. So thank you for your patience.
1: Well, I mean, thank you for being busy, because you being busy is entertaining Mm. for all of us, right, because it's busy for a good cause. Um speaking of
0: being busy so where are you now you you're back in uh, the states I am yeah I'm back in Las Vegas all right. so now for the first time all year really just busy with uh, run it once work it's been a it's been poker uh all year uh, up until like well a month ago
1: all right well so many topics to talk about i think let's talk about the challenge yeah because that's the fun one. And then we're gonna discuss the poker industry and all all the changes and what you're doing with the site. But, so you were pretty much a poker player for
0: like half a year. Yeah, yeah, it was very, uh, very fun. I missed poker a lot. Um, and even, you know, over the past few years, I've been spending so much time on Run It Once, um, still played some poker here and there um would go you know up to canada or down to mexico for a month and play uh, a little bit uh and then would would play the world series but realistically like there's a big difference between doing that and taking it very seriously and and getting you know very competitive and and working on my game and things like that so it was it was something that I, I knew that I missed, but I didn't know quite how much I missed it until uh, until it happened. Right. So when you thought about, okay, let's have a challenge.
1: Let's get people to play me regularly. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you went for the high stakes. You went for something that's going to be not only interesting for you, but also entertaining. So, you know, kind of killing two birds with one, with one shot. But how did you feel about it? Like, I'm I'm just thinking if I was in your shoes and I would be away from regular poker for a while and I know that the game moved on, I know I hear stories about all these guys uh, just going crazy, study, study, study. How did you think like, okay, I'm going to basically tell anyone, tell the best ones, let's play and I can win?
0: I didn't know that I could win. I I mean I felt very confident that I could get close um with enough study. And I actually didn't study as much as I thought I would. I thought I, I had a lot of time to prepare, but um but there was probably once work to be done. So uh when I when I I guess I'll I'll take a step back, I the, I realized how much I missed playing. Um, this was actually, so Elliot Rowe did a, a, he hosts this, I forget what it's called, a mastermind where, uh, a bunch of people, um, different in, in different industries, um, get together and have like a, it's like a two day, maybe sometimes three day, um, thing, event, uh, and he did it in Las Vegas and he invited me. Um, and usually charges quite a bit. He invited me uh, to come along for free because he wanted me to try it out and he thought I would like it. And, uh, in it, you, everybody gets like, there's a lot of group discussion, but then everybody gets their turn kind of, uh, in front of the group. And, um, I guess just to sum up, you talk about what's going on in your life, what, uh, you know, things that are going well, things that are going not well, things that you want, and then it kind of opens up for feedback from everybody else. Um, these are a lot of people who uh there there were several poker players there, people that run businesses, uh, a lot of other things. And so you get a lot of different perspectives. And you know, I talked about running the poker site and the training site, and I talked about um, you know, playing poker. And I don't really remember everything I talked about, but what what happened when I kind of opened when, when it opened up for discussion is uh almost everybody said, and these are people who were not not the poker players, although they said it as well. But actually, more more strongly, the the non poker players did. They said, they said, you know, when you talk about the business, you're you are talking in a you know normal way that that most people would talk. And when you would talk about playing poker, you lit up, and it was just so obvious to them that that was what my passion was, and that was um. Kind of what I needed to be doing, and so after that weekend, I had I didn't have any decisions made. I, I had resolved to find a way to play more poker, and when I thought of the the challenge, it was really exciting to me because it was a way that I could play poker but still help the business uh, rather than just playing poker and ignoring the business and let, you know uh, and, and yeah, letting it fend for itself. Um, letting my team fend for themselves. So um, yeah, when the idea came together, I was really excited because I got to find a way to do both. Um, and so that's uh, i knew I knew before I thought of the challenge that I wanted to play more poker, and I uh, needed to figure out a way to do it. And the challenge idea kind of came along. As far as you know who I or, or being confident I could compete, Um, I definitely did not, uh, you know, have any kind of confidence, you know, I thought, I thought I, after some study could be a favorite against these guys. I certainly didn't, didn't know, like, didn't have a lot of confidence that I would be. Um, but I did have a lot of confidence that I could get close. Uh, I really felt that way. And with the, uh, with the site promotion, with the fact that, you know, I was going to get better as I played, um, and. and the fact that, you know, when I opened it up, I didn't know what kind of players, uh, challengers I would get. Um, I think because like, I was, I was only going to play so many matches. You only have so much time. And I was, you know, hoping to get a lot of offers, which I did. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, I I figured I would have some options of players who were excited to play that I actually felt confident I had an edge on and then others that, that I didn't. And I, and that is kind of what happened. And I thought for the kind of, uh, well, for the, the show, it would be good to get a mix of, of kind of different types of players. Um, and so that's what I, that's what I ended up choosing. Um, you know, the, the, the invite to, to reach out to me and propose a challenge was open, but, you know, it was up to me to choose, uh, who I went with and, uh, I certainly didn't go with the the softest, uh, I don't know, even five or six matches. Um, but I, I, I did want to get a mix and I, I different levels of kind of challenging myself and also giving people kind of different, a different type of show uh, to put on.
1: Hmm. I want to touch upon two things here. I mean, first of all, that conversation that you had in the mastermind where people were pointing out that you're lighting up um why do you think that is like what specifically draws you to poker why is poker still such a big thing because let's face it i mean you successfully transitioned to other ventures you you have a business you have other interests in life and yet poker seems to always be there for you and it still
0: maintains this uh yeah. special place uh, so why is that i don't know exactly um i do know a lot of players who you know played for many, many years and got to a point where they were sick of it. Um, many who only play because it's their only way of making a lot of money. And so that that's why they play that. Uh, you know, fortunately for me, I've always had a passion for the game. It's never, never left. Of course it, you know, it ebbs and flows. There are times where I, I you know, I could use a break and times where I'm super excited to play. Um, I don't exactly know why it is. I think any time that, I think it's human nature to to gravitate towards, you know, things that you're good at. And so, the fact that I'm pretty good at poker, I think, makes it fun. Um, I, you know, in in running a business, there are a lot of interesting challenges. And, and like, there are certain things I think I'm good at, certain things I think I am not. Um, and I have to do a bit of each. And I, I find it challenging and fun and interesting. But... I don't know. It feels more like work. Poker's a game. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, poker's a game and it's competition. Uh, I'm a competitive person by nature. I, I, I think I don't come across as a competitive person. And I think I also maybe just kind of don't come across as somebody that it just has like this burning like fire to, to, to play. Uh, but I, I really am passionate about playing poker, I really love it um yeah I, I just find it really, really fun, and you know, to be honest, before these challenges, I would say that it ended up being more fun than I thought because before these challenges uh i've I've been away from the game like at a high level for so long um and over that period of time uh you know solvers have have kind of taken center stage as you know this is what poker is about now um and because i wasn't studying them and and playing uh i was i had the kind of perception that the best players were going to be the players who memorized what the solvers do the best and i knew that i was not good at studying and not not good at remembering things um I was good at figuring things out, uh, as a player. And I felt like, you know, not only are there now answers that you need to like kind of drill into your mind. So there's less to figure out, but your opponents are now playing based on these answers drilled into their minds. So there's going to be less figuring them out. Um, but really like once I got back to playing, I realized it's, it's not the case. The, the, the qualities that, that made, you know, the best players 10 years ago, the best players, the majority of those are still needed um, and, and still have a lot of value in today's game. Um, and, and and solvers are just another tool. I mean, you know, trackers were a tool. Equity calculators were a tool. And uh, I mean, I remember, f- I don't know, 15, 14 years ago, I was playing sit and goes and you had like the, the rudimentary uh, push fold. Um, like a uh, software that you would enter, you know, enter like a, their You would have to manually enter their calling ranges uh, by position. And then they would tell you if you can shove certain hands. So there have always been tools and they keep getting more advanced, but my perception was that, that a solver was in a category of its own, which to be fair, it is, but it, in practical terms, it's still just a tool. And the uh, the human element still plays a very very big role, and I can't necessarily speak to um, to no limit holdem, which I think people probably play a little bit closer to solvers than they do in PLO. Um, but I, I would assume this is true there. But in in PLO, uh, nobody's really close; like everybody's making a ton of theoretical mistakes, and so it's still. In my opinion, still very much about figuring out the the way that your, your opponent thinks, the way he plays certain hands and where his where his leaks lie, and taking advantage. I think there's still a lot of room for that mm-hmm. and that got me more excited because that's that's the part that I find fun um and that's the part that I think I'm good at right,
1: right, And you've mentioned uh, that the qualities that make a good player today are pretty much the same as they were 10 years ago mm-hmm. can you name some of those qualities what do you think
0: are so that's a very good question questions? um it's hard to sum up because it's not i mean it's correlated with intelligence but it's certainly not strictly intelligence um it's it's you know correlated with good deductive reasoning logic um it's i mean it's definitely a group of things but it's I'm trying to think of a concise way to put it, and I don't. I don't really know. So I'll uh, try the less mm-hmm. concise way. Um, you know, it, when you're, it's it's kind of just. I feel like synthesizing a lot of information into uh, into kind of more simple. Um, Man, I'm trying. Uh, So uh, when you're playing somebody, you're taking note of showdowns, you're taking note of, I mean, all the other elements, like the bet sizings they're using, sometimes the timing they're using, and you're getting an idea of how they think through a hand. And when you have kind of a, a rough idea of that, then you think through what that might mean for for how they play other hands in other spots. Um, and another thing is, you know, there's still just... Look, the the flop is, is this, the turn is this. Okay, what are the hands he's going to bluff with on the river? What are the hands he's going to value bet? What are the hands that, you know, should be value betting that he's missing or should not be bluffing that he is bluffing or should be bluffing that he's not? And um, I guess in that sense, it's just quick thinking uh, because there's, there are so many factors to go through that it's impossible to go through all of them. And so it's, it's, I guess, quickly identifying the important ones and um, and getting good rough guesses uh, as to what they are. Um, But yeah, it's hard to explain, but it's still, yeah, hand reading is still very much a thing. Even if somebody's playing closer to optimally, the way the board runs out, not, not all boards are equal. And, you know, when you're studying a solver and you are studying a specific board and you get a good idea of bluff frequencies on that runout, a board that looks somewhat similar, um, things can still be quite a bit different. And maybe you face a smaller bet size on the flop or maybe the turn got checked through this time compared to another time that everybody still has to use their minds to to give it their best shot at a balanced strategy. And in some cases that would mean, you know, bluffing with a hand that's like feels too strong to bluff with or is uncomfortable to bluff with. And in some cases it means making a value bet that that's pretty scary or you know is unnatural. Um, And so players' leaks will come from, you know, first of all, you know, maybe not not realizing how large of a difference there is between this spot and the the model in their mind, and then also come from emotional decisions, uh, even at the highest levels, I think, um, where, you know, it's easy to say, if if I give you a hand and I give you 30 minutes, uh, even without a solver, but just 30 minutes in pen and paper, yeah, you could probably come up with, you know, okay, so I probably have, you know, this many of this hand category, and you know what, I do need to bluff this hand that That feels too strong to bluff with. But in game, you're you don't have time to figure that out. And it's very easy to say, oh I mean, I do have a lot of strong hands here. It's hard for me to have weaker than this. But like I probably win so often when he's folding anyways. So I'm just check and it's over. And then that that player doesn't bluff enough in that spot. And it doesn't mean that player doesn't bluff enough overall. They could over bluff uh overall, but there are spots where they're not going to. And so I think. Yeah, figuring out, uh, and it always has to be a rough guess because it's too hard to do in detail, but figuring out all those kind of dynamics and the type of hands your opponent's going to show up with and based on that, which direction they're more likely to make a mistake in, um, I think is important, uh, very important. And it just no matter how much your opponent studies it, those things are going to be there.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. There's a few things I want to expand on here. Um First of all, I want to ask you, do you think far ahead in the hand? Say, when you're on the flop, are you actually considering all sorts of variations?
0: Uh, Short answer is yes, but I I actually think, if anything, I do a little bit too much of that Mm -hmm. Um, because it's very easy to get caught up in. Like, I think, actually, that's how I make some mistakes because I will think, for example, you know... uh, if I bet this hand and I turn this two outer, it's going to look super deceptive, and I'm going to stack him. So, like, I really want to bet this hand that maybe shouldn't bet, and I like I'll end up making a play like that for future street deception on rare turns or rivers, um, which is not enough of a reason. I think it's important to think ahead, but the 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 level to which I think I should think ahead and and where I should stop is. Let's make sure I'm covered on on a certain number of runouts in both my you know checking and betting range or my raising and calling range. Um, I think going too far beyond that is is well at least for me personally I, I end up making more mistakes than 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 extra good plays.
1: Right, right. And what about your memory? Because you keep saying that you pay attention to the bet sizes, the timing tiles, how people played a hand in a specific situation would you say Mm -hmm. that you are actually pretty good at remembering what happened in the match?
0: My memory, I would describe as, uh, has a mind of its own. Um, Sometimes I just can't remember really simple things that I want to. And other times I remember very obscure things from forever ago. Um, I have pretty good memory when it comes to, um, to hands that have played out. That usually I, I remember pretty well. Um, things like, you know, what a what a betting range looks like in a solver on a certain run. I'm I'm terrible at remembering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that you know all the things I just went into about like, well, reviewing showdowns from opponents and getting an idea of how they play. I think a lot of that is uh, subconscious for me. And I kind of get, like, I can tell you that I have a, like, I feel that I have a good idea of how Action Freak thinks through a hand and how he plays, but I don't think I could describe it to you. Mm-hmm. So that that's, yeah, that's the best way I can explain it. Sort of intuitive for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: interesting, yeah, interesting. And I mean, I just want to kind of summarize what I understood from what you're saying, because it's, yeah. I, I firmly believe that you know, you basically pointed out all of the things that i believe as well to be hugely important yeah. and uh, namely you know the, the the one of the key things you've mentioned is the time constraint give 30 minutes to a guy sure every decision can be trivial or somebody can overthink and then they go really yeah. obscure but within the time constraints of the hand you have to make a decision and you have to simplify the information that is available because, to be honest, there is way too much information. You have to boil it down to what's important. Now, boiling down to what's important is difficult when emotions play a role, Mm -hmm. right? So staying calm throughout. And I think that was one of the uh, things that you were really good at throughout the challenges so far that you didn't let the emotions dictate you know, the the course of play. I mean, potentially it happened before you took the break against Vinny Vidi, but, you know, mm-hmm. apart from that period of, you know, a few days, um, we didn't see, at least on the outside, we didn't see that affect you. And sure, it did. I mean, you're not yeah. a robot. Of course, it did yeah. affect you, but potentially it might affect other people slightly more. And oftentimes, as players, we don't even realize that it has an effect. But, because of the time constraint and of you have to simplify information you have to make a decision based on the simplification emotions cloud your judgment very often and mm-hmm. and you know you you simplify in a way that suits your narrative very often when you're emotional
0: yes yeah well said you uh, it's easy for a player who you know Loves to value bet thinly to come up with a reason to to value bet thinly. Yeah, exactly. um, I th- I think that for me, um, you know, it's hard to know uh, how other players feel during a hand. I think, uh, well, I'm very calm from a I don't know. I don't really like get angry. Uh, Like from that perspective, I'm pretty calm. I think uh, I would guess that my emotions during a hand, like my excitement or fear of making certain plays, I think probably are about average. Um, But I think a strength of mine is that I'm very aware of them. Um, They're like, I always can tell what I'm feeling. And usually, maybe not usually, but often can catch it even during a hand and say like, you know, I want to check here. Okay, hold on. (laughs) <laughs> Is it really right to check or you just want to check and um, and c- catch myself? And I think actually being aware of, being very aware of my own feelings, excitement, fear, all those things uh, help me understand how other players feel uh, pretty well. Mm-hmm. And that was actually
1: speaking of that, you know, oh, I want to check. Uh, I'm going to check and wait a minute. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a great, great point that you bring up. Because of how often you faced the check raise on the river, for example. Okay, yeah. yeah. Know, a lot of people would would basically <laughs> be very uncomfortable with what am I supposed to do? You know, but you kept relentlessly still making the bets and you faced the check raise again. And can you talk me through that? Like when these plays were happening, what was going on through your mind and what were you feeling really?
0: Um, I think one thing um one thing I saw happen a lot, especially in the in the Venavidi match, is I noticed that, um, like naturally, I have more fear of of betting the river in position than out of position because, uh, well for, if you check the river out of position, you can still face a pot size bet, um, and obviously, if you check the river in position, you can just showdown. So, I think that's pretty common among players. But I think actually. I never felt like I was, well, maybe not never, but I don't feel like I was betting too, too often in position on the river because I actually think my fears kept me in check there for the most part. Um, I think out of position, what ended up happening is I was just like small betting too often um, with any hand that could justify a small bet for, for, uh, for a large portion of the match. And uh, he was raising a lot and I wasn't uh, combating it very well. I think that's because there there was no emotional barrier to making a small bet out of position uh, because, you know, doesn't open me up to a check race. He uh, mm-hmm. can bet anyways. Um, but as far as betting in position, I still think that I, I think early in the match I was doing in that match in particular, I was doing too much betting in position too thinly for value and, Um, probably correctly as bluffs, uh, corresponding to how often I was value betting. but I think I was value betting too thinly and uh, putting in too much money in a lot of spots. Um, but I don't think that was like, that had nothing to do with emotions. It was just, I was rusty and, and based on the, the bit of studying I did, I was overvaluing hands essentially. Mm -hmm. And he adjusted, uh, by trapping me quite a bit. Um, and getting me to value cut and getting those check raises in. And I, over the course of the match, I realized that. And, uh, like I, what he was doing was just normal. Maybe some slight deviations to take advantage of the fact that I was putting in too much money against checks, but I just realized, um, you know, with more study and just seeing the results of the hands that I was, um, Yeah, I I realized that I was putting in too much money. So what I I would check a little bit more often with hands that could have value bet thinly. I also sized down more than I was uh, early in the match. Early in the match, a lot of my sizings were pot, uh, both on turn and river, um, especially in position. And I made sure to size down more when I I was relatively capped. Because there are all these spots where you're relatively capped, but you still want a value betting range. You don't necessarily have to pot it in those spots uh, and open Mm -hmm. yourself up to uh, getting a lot of money. Uh, kind of shoved in your face, so those were more strategic things than emotional things, and actually not at all what you asked um, right. but that's that 's kind of how uh I saw that that dynamic go as far as the the kind of discomfort element i still well yeah I still feel some fear in those spots, like I think everybody does in a large pot when you're you have the opportunity to bet river and can get jammed on um, but i do I do catch myself and you know, I'll feel the fear, but I'll say, you know what, he is only going to have a better hand like ten percent of the time. So I just have to make this bet, and if it's that ten percent of the time, so be it. Um, so yeah, I, I do, I do still feel feel that fear um, and discomfort in a lot of spots, but I just uh, kind of reason my way through it.
1: Right, but it's interesting to like. Let me illustrate. Um uh, mm-hmm. one thing for you because I know a lot of people and I know myself at one point in my career I was also let's say guilty of that or struggling with a specific thing. Let's say let's say let's take a simple situation. Let's say I make a bet and I was apprehensive before making a bet, I'm like um oh, mm-hmm. probably shouldn't be doing this, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Then I get the check raise. And then you get, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, what happened? Uh, this, yeah. this this is bad. I'm, I'm hating this. This is a stupid situation. And you know what? Four seconds, five seconds passed. And we only have so much time. And we yeah. talked previously about how important it is to to basically do the most you can in the limited time that that you have. To simplify the things. But, you know, all the self-talk is anything but helpful yeah. in simplifying things and also wastes a lot of time and then adds this emotional aspect of, you know, you're not even thinking straight. You're not thinking through all the facts. You're just thinking about, you know, something else. So when you say that you are still feeling, you know, um, you know slightly apprehensive, let's say, before making some of those plays, but then mm-hmm. once you make, make the play, I would assume you're still sort of fall back on your decision-making process first and foremost. And, and it doesn't really go through four seconds of self-talk of like how, how bad the situation is for you.
0: Yeah. I, um, no, I think if anything, the mistakes that I made in those spots have been like <sighs> the, the whole time, the whole time I'm timing down before betting, I'm like really, really on the fence. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I should bet this. And then I bet, um, the mistakes that I make often are I get check raised and I just snap fold cause I was like, mm. I shouldn't have bet. Like this is one of my thinnest bets. I shouldn't have bet. Um, but I, I usually catch myself before that happens. I don't, I guess I don't, I guess maybe I have a, like a second or two. Um, not so much of self-talk like, but more of like a, just like, all right. <laughs> and then, and then go into the thought process. Uh, but I don't take too long uh, to, to get to the thought process part. Um, but yeah, the, the mistakes that I've made have been reacting too quickly to right. a spot where, yeah, I was like, cause it's kind of natural, not only, um, from an emotional perspective, but also it's easy to kind of use the logical shortcut of like, well, this is clearly the bottom of my value betting range. Cause I almost didn't even bet it so I can just fold, but there's more to it than that. And you, you have to stop and think through the spot. All right. I feel like we talked about the sort of micro
1: scale, you know, the one decision, one hand type of thing. Uh, Obviously, slightly talked about, you know, the course of a day, for example, when you are going to have some emotional, um, you know, swings, let's say emotional swings throughout the day. But what was so special about your challenge is that it's basically five days a week. Your breaks are pre-scheduled. So regardless of how bad the day before was, you're going to be playing. And I think for a lot of people, that is a big problem, you know, because to switch off from one day to another, come back fresh and uh, stay focused on the thing. The worst thing that can happen is you have your day off some four days from now and you have to keep playing and you know that that day off is not coming. You don't have a fallback. Um, How did you deal with that?
0: It was hard, um, but I think you know equally hard for my opponents. At least, I'm. I actually went into it thinking it was not going to be that challenging a schedule because you know we with the venue match we only played four hours most days. Sometimes we played five, but it's mostly four hours a day, five days a week, which is I mean it's a twenty hour work week, but which is nothing. But obviously they're studying in between, and I. I actually still don't know. I don't know if it was the, the nature of the challenge because it was strictly scheduled and because it was on a big stage and then because it was so intense for those reasons that it was so draining or if heads up PLO is more draining than I remember it from five years ago, but it was hard. It was draining. Um, I was, I was exhausted at the end of every day, even before the end of the session, I was exhausted. Um, so that, that aspect, uh, in and of itself was, was difficult. Um, and then, like you said, the emotional aspect. I'm. I don't generally tilt too badly, um, but I am. I do like to take days off if I'm not feeling optimistic or not feeling good, which you know will happen, of course, when you when you lose, um, and you don't really get that option. Obviously, we have some. There were some days off on both of our sides that that we each paid for, um, but. It was hard sometimes going back in the next day, especially the way that the challenge started. Um, but you know, I I found for myself that the I found the challenges incredibly stressful and uh, demanding emotionally outside of the hours of play. But while I was playing, I found that I was able to let all that go and just play. Um, I was. You know, I was certainly affected by it because, you know, when you're, when you're like tense the rest of the day, when you're not sleeping as much, it affects your play. But as far as thinking about anything besides poker, once we were playing poker, I I was not, I was just playing. So that at least was good, but I was surprised by how intense I found the, uh, the challenge as a whole, um, you know, throughout the days, throughout the weeks.
1: Mm -hmm. What do you think was adding the intensity there? Because you've mentioned the public aspect, right? That mm-hmm. it was basically for everybody to see uh, some people were harsh to you on Twitter. Sure. And uh, that, all of that, those things.
0: It wasn't even my results that didn't bother me. Um, I still found the action freak match intense even when I started up with a big lead. I think it's the, the structure of it, What whatever... I've always found, uh, tournaments, even small stakes tournaments to be more intense than cash games. And because there is a, I don't know, there's a winner and, and like, I I don't, something about a structured competition. And it felt the same way with this, where it was just so different than, you know, a cash game session, you go in, you win or you lose, and then that's over and you're on to the next day. But, you know, every, hand that I played during this challenge every day that I played counted towards whether I would win or lose in the end and there's only one winner and one loser uh, at the end of these and so I just think the yeah the the structure of a challenge made it feel so much more competitive to me and I cared that much more about it than I would uh just a regular session
1: Mm, interesting do you think your opponents felt the same way? I
0: mean, obviously we're just speculating. There's no way of knowing. I mean, I had some conversations with them. I, I think action freak felt the same way. Uh, I know that he felt it was pretty intense. And, uh, I don't know if it was the the competition aspect, but I, I know the scheduled aspect. Uh, mm-hmm. he was, was not a big fan of, um, once, once we started playing, He was yeah. it was intense for him. I know that. I don't, Veni uh, Vidi never gave me an indication that that it was super intense for him. He seemed more relaxed, but also, I mean, he he had to lead the whole time, of course, until the end. Um, but yeah, I I don't know for sure. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, Venny is very used to playing long hours and uh, you know long sessions. So yeah, I think he was mm-hmm. quite comfortable in in uh, in the format of the challenge. Yeah, put it this way. Okay. Um, how do you feel about, like, when you were walking into this, when you were starting the challenge, you obviously mm-hmm. had some sort of perception how it's going to look like. And then what's the reality compared to what you right. expected?
0: Uh, as far as, like, well, there are a few different things. As far as the, you know, results, I was I was pretty confident going into the first challenge. And so to... Uh, to have it go the way it did at the start was, uh, like a very, was obviously, I mean, it's disappointing no matter what, but, uh, it was obviously very disappointing and, uh, like something I wasn't completely mentally prepared for. Cause you, even if, you know, I obviously knew that I could lose, but I just didn't envision, you know, losing almost a million in it. I, I, I knew I could lose, but I, it just went so, so badly, so quickly that um, that wasn't something I like, it it wasn't something that I was thinking about as a potential outcome, really. Uh, Even though I knew that it, you know, technically was, Uh, that was hard as far as the whole, like the production and and all of that. It uh, I don't know. It, It went kind of how I, at the start, it went kind of how I thought it would I think, as far as you know how popular it was uh, number of viewers things like that it it got it it got um, you know more and more people watched towards the end because of I think in large part the way the match played out um, and so that that was um, that was crazy to me how how many people were were watching at the end um, but as far as yeah the thing is uh, all of it as a whole uh went kind of how I expected. Um, it was really hard to tell how much it helped run at once poker because we kind of saw a steady increase in traffic from November to April. Um, and there was no real indication. It was not obvious, you know, once the challenge kicked in, it didn't, you know, shoot up. It was just like the steady increase, uh, over that time. And, um, and then even once, you know, lockdowns. Uh, and, and quarantines across the world started happening. It just continued to steadily increase. Well, uh, and so I don't know what's responsible for for the growth uh, of the site. Um, it did it did drop in uh, in May and the beginning of June, um, which I, with with a lot of the industry. But anyways, um, I was kind of hopeful that it would help, like that we'd see a big spike in traffic from the challenge, and we we didn't. Um, I have to imagine it must have helped, but it's it's really hard to measure. Mm.
1: Well, at least you've won the challenges. That's yes. I, that's yeah. good. <laughs> you know, traffic yeah. might not have picked up, but
0: uh, <laughs> yeah, it didn't end up being the, uh, the uh, huge marketing expense on on my part. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, wanna talk about what went through? Because, like, that first challenge that you had against Vinnie right? It's probably gonna. It's safe to say it's gonna come down in the history of online poker at least, as one of the most interesting things that happened, uh, of the publicity, you know, it's one of one of the first, probably the first challenge of this sort, really. Um, and the way it went, it's such an illustration for what PLO, heads up PLO is, because, yeah. you know, sure, it's an unlikely swing, but it's not an impossible swing. Obviously, yeah. you've proven that, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh So, yeah, that's always going to be there as an illustration of, well, what can happen. It also is going to be there as an illustration of what it takes to be a professional poker player, you know, on any level, to be honest, you know, because, okay, on your level, it happens to be a million dollar swing Um, for somebody who's playing micro stakes is probably, you know, the question of whether they become a professional or not. Maybe, yeah. you know, because they can get wiped out and lose all the interest uh, in the first 15 days and say, well, this game clearly sucks and I have no talent for it, right? And likewise, for some people, it's an unreasonable expectation of what what they can achieve, right? Because they might get into the first 10,000 yeah. hands and they absolutely crush and they keep going up the stakes, up the stakes until they get the reality check. And, um, you know, we all know those stories, but... So it's such an illustration on so many levels of what what's happening, what can happen, et cetera, et cetera. But this, I don't want to say case study because there is no case study about it, but how you guys handled it from the mental game perspective, I think this is something that all of the sports can in a way take, uh, take a lesson from, right? And I know that you obviously worked with Elliot Rowe a lot throughout mm-hmm. the challenge. Can you maybe talk a bit about some of the key things that you found helpful for yourself to deal with with that crazy situation that you were
0: in? I mean, Elliot... What Elliot and I mostly worked on was was what I said I ended up doing a good job of, which was letting it all go, going into the sessions, individual sessions. Um, The... And I guess also throughout the, throughout the, uh, challenges, I would catch myself, um, you know, in a given week or, or whatever I'd say, you know what, like he would help me figure out what I believed I needed to focus on and, and usually from, from an emotional perspective. So sometimes it was, um, you know, overcoming a fear of whatever, but like, uh, betting the turn with a hand that wants to value bet, but really doesn't want to get check race pretty common one. Um, whatever I was feeling at that moment. And, and during the Veni challenge, there was a lot of those because, um, because things were going so poorly for me because every time I, I, you know, I felt like I did this, I just saw a huge hand. And every time I, you know, bluffed, it didn't work. Like, so there was a lot of that, that, you know, uh, there wasn't necessarily a theme that spanned the whole uh, challenge or multiple challenges, but at any given time that I felt like one of those was kind of weighing on me, uh, we would, we would talk about it and work on it. But mostly what we did was pre-session, relax and play poker essentially. And um, I think that is, you know, f- like, fortunately, I think I, I'm naturally decent at that anyways, but he, he helped me, you know, be better at it, be very good at it. And I do feel like when I was playing, I wouldn't say I. I thought that I was going to have more fun while playing. It was it was a little too intense for me to have as much fun as I thought I would. Um, and that was something we tried to work on. But but at least I was in the moment uh, the whole time that I was playing. Hmm. And
1: I wanna, cause I I obviously I talk a lot about the importance of a team, importance of of hmm. a coach, importance of well, yeah, just the team in a simple simple way, right? And a lot of people seem to undervalue that aspect. And because sure. when you say that the things that Elliot helped you with, you're naturally quite all right at. Mm-hmm. Um, and to you, it's natural that even though I'm all right, I still need some extra yeah. push. I still need some extra supervision. Uh, can you expand on that? Like, because throughout your career, you've been, um, you know, Getting coaching from other people, you've been coaching yourself. You know, you you're yeah. you're you did it from all the aspects. So what what's your opinion about the importance of
0: of this and poker? Yeah, I mean, every time, like, I don't think I don't think coaching is necessary, but I think that like all of the biggest you know leaps in my career have come just working with friends um i you can you and even friends who are you know maybe playing even significantly smaller stakes or are not not nearly as good as you a lot can be gained just i don't know exactly what aspect it is but just like even if you're explaining things to them which i get through you know training videos and have for so many years um and through some friendships Uh, Or, you know, they're explaining things to you or you're both trying to figure something out together. Um, There's something about getting all of the thoughts that are inside your head out. Um, And, you know, and sometimes like, you know, you have so many ideas um, and so many things that you're like trying to process, let's say from a solver, trying to to, to learn um, and, you know, synthesize all this information. Um, and while you have all these ideas in your head. you You don't really know if any of them are right. You just have a lot of ideas that make sense to you, but. If you can get them out, even to somebody who's, it doesn't have to be a player who's better than you. It can be, of course, it helps. But you get those ideas out to somebody or a group of people and you get a consensus about some of them. Okay, this idea, this seems to be right. Or or you get some shot down and explained, you know, why, why you're not right. Um, it's really helpful to have, like, and it's never certainty because even if, you know, Three people agree on on like some idea of a of right way to adjust in general to the population. Um, you still might be wrong, but um, it's something about like not just the ideas and the things you learn, but having some more confidence to kind of tuck that away. Is like okay, that's something I basically know. Now I can move on to to learn other things. Um, I think that's really helpful. Um, I have always kind of sought coaching. Because for me, I guess I at every point in my poker career, I thought that I had a lot of career ahead of me. it just always makes sense that if you pay a little bit now to accelerate your growth as a player, um, it's just going to pay dividends over the next two, five, 10 years, Um, but like very easily. Um, So personally, I always sought coaching. Um, I wouldn't even say I've had that many coaches, but... Whenever uh, I don't know when I tried when I transitioned like forever ago from uh, sit and goes to no limit cash, I just sought out um, a few coaches just to like kickstart that uh, that transition. I guess with PLO, I mostly watch training videos, but um, but either way, I've always just invested in in learning. Uh, for that reason, I think most people should. If you're not If you're not planning to stick around poker for a long time, maybe it doesn't make as much sense. But if you are, and you can afford whatever level of coaching that that makes sense for your bankroll, it's just like almost always, unless you have a bad coach leading you in the wrong direction, it's always going to pay dividends.
1: Yeah. But even if you're not sticking around for long, then the question is, why not quit today?
0: Why stick yeah. around for another six months? Just, just leave. Yeah, and that's of. actually usually the reason that somebody's not going to stick around for long, is because they're playing for the money and they don't love the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it can work, but especially uh, you know in this day and age where games are tough compared to ten years ago, um, I don't know. It's hard to succeed if you if you don't really want it if you don't have a passion for it.
1: Absolutely. And one thing that you've not, uh, mentioned um, was that when you're coaching and where you're making videos, for example, mm-hmm. right, you have to voice your thoughts. And I always found, as I used to watch a lot of your videos back in the day, and I think that's the best material out there, hands down, right? Thank never you. mind, even even the old videos, you know, never mind the mm-hmm. strategy. The strategy obviously evolved, they changed, you know, you can't take everything face value anymore. But just to have you explain the thought process, it's incredible because you're to the point yeah. you're, you know, it's very simple to understand. And yet you you touch upon so many uh, in, important aspects of every decision in every hand. Were you always, was it natural for you when you first started making videos or did you sort of evolve into this, what I consider pretty high level of, of being uh, able to, to basically voice your your inner thoughts throughout the hand.
0: Um it it was always natural for me. And in fact I had a remember in uh when I was uh in high school I was 16 or something and I had a, an engineering class and in it we would do like a project and then after every project that would take a couple weeks we would write a report on the project and explain you know what we learned and what whatever. Um and I one day after class, um, my teacher asked me to come back uh, during lunch because so he wanted to talk to me about something. Okay, um, and I came back, and he said, "You know, um, there are writers in the and he ta- uh the Washington Post. We lived right right outside of DC. Um, in like the Washington Post, who right in this their science section, and they explain these advanced concepts to." To everybody, so that people can understand them, and I think you'd be really good at this. Um, and I don't know what you're looking to do after school, and you know what careers you're interested in, but this is something I think you'd be really good at um, because you are. So, so all that to say, I, I was doing that already. I think naturally. I think the reason that I can do it naturally is that, first of all, I, I I think in internal monologue pretty often rather than just like quick thoughts that are not verbalized in my head. Mm-hmm. um so i do think think in the way that i speak very often and um and i think that i i don't know how to put it but like i don't i don't know i don't speak in big words uh like i i don't know i i think that the way i think is high level but i don't know i never a lot of people will understand advanced concepts and explain them in a way that is just like using super, you know, technical language. And I don't know if they, because they want to sound smart or it's the only way that they can say it. But I, I just don't think in that way. I feel like I, in my own mind, for myself to learn, think in simpler terms. And so it's just easier for me to to explain it that way. Right. Sort of efficient the way you explain. Yeah.
1: Um and also like now that i think about it if if you're saying that pretty much when you're making a video of uh, you know voicing your thoughts you're you're pretty much voicing your internal monologue yeah which also probably helps you with what you were describing earlier catching yourself when you have mm-hmm. emotions because well that those emotions are probably part of your internal monologue and you know it's much yeah. easier to catch yourself <laughs> saying something to yourself yeah. rather, you know than just having these random thoughts and That's very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. um, What else? Yeah, the Galphone challenge. We really, really (laughs) covered a lot of interesting things. Yeah. You know what? Another thing I want to talk about um, how was it at home, basically? You know, because sure, you play four or five hours a day, you do a few um, sessions of studies, but. You know, you have a little baby, you have a wife, you have other applications, you have obligations towards your company. You have to do a bit of this, a bit of that, then a bit of PR, a bit of you know social media, whatever. Pretty busy day. So how how was it, basically being at home?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I am thankful to a lot of people for uh, for making it easier on me. Um, you know, like the the run at once team uh you know is 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 made up in, in part from from players who are professional players and understand uh understand a match like this and they did a an excellent job of making sure that anything that they felt needed to run by me was condensed uh, as much as possible, and you know, I would have a, um, you know, maybe a two-hour call once every two weeks, and that would uh, would get in there everything that I needed to, that they needed from me, um, and you know, handle the rest on their own. So, run It once uh, essentially ran without me in 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 a lot of ways, and they they did an excellent job of that. Um, at home, it was it was very tough on Farah, my wife, because. Um, we went from, uh, so like from the age of actually, no, basically right away, Um we, we left for Canada when uh, our son was one, like almost exactly. And up until then, we had a 25 to 40 hour a week nanny helping out. Um, and my schedule was less intense. So, uh and we went up to Canada and we had no help. And I was working a lot, so it all fell to Farah. Um, which I mean, I I know that there are a lot of mothers out there that do it without without the help of a nanny, but it, uh, it was just it was a big change for her from what had had been happening in Vegas. Uh, and now we go up there. Not only that, but then you know there's there's uh, lockdown, and you know she can no longer go take him to do certain activities, keep him busy. So they were. They were cooped up, they were bored. Um, and I actually, you know, before we started all this, uh, we had a conversation and it was basically, it's easier for me to work when I have like a a structured uh, time frame. It's not like, oh, we'll see what happens today. Maybe I'll stop at this hour. Maybe, you know, if you need me, let me know. Um, and so when we started, it was just like, all right, until wake up at 6 a.m. till 4 p.m., I'm on my own. I can do whatever I need to do. Um, and that, that was really helpful. And I was very appreciative of that. Um, then, you know, I spend the evening with them and help put them to bed and all those things. Uh, but once uh, a couple months in, she was really struggling. Um, just, you know, they're basically sitting in one room all day with him and uh, they, uh, they, they, they needed some help. Uh, and so I, towards the end of the, the any challenge. Uh, and then onward, um, I was, I was working a little less, I was studying a little less essentially, mm-hmm. um, which was okay because, you know, like most of the studying I needed to do was not so much opponent specific, but was just like getting caught up on theory that I, uh, which I was able to by that point, but mm-hmm. yeah, I would, I would quit earlier. Um, and, and actually it was kind of flexible at that point. Some days I was like, I can't, stop today. Sorry. The other days so I was like, Oh, the match matches over. I don't really need to do much now. So I'll go help out. Um, but so yeah, uh, she was very supportive. Obviously, you know, sometimes days were rough on her and then I would, you know, come in and, and help where I could. Um, but also obviously the start of the first challenge was tough on, on all of us, uh, just cause of the results themselves but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I have an understanding wife. Uh, I, it's not easy. You know, it's, it, it's not easy to go from wake up pre-session prep, play, study, now take care of a baby and then mm-hmm. go to bed, like with no real downtime. Like we, we would have maybe literally one hour of, we eat dinner while watching TV show and then go to bed. So like, there was not much downtime that was hard, but lots of people have, have to work a lot and have kids take care of. And, um, it definitely, it definitely makes it, you know, a little harder than it was before, before being a dad, but, uh, Mm. well worth it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: And can you switch off? Like when, when you actually go to the family, how
0: good are you at switching off? I'm pretty bad at it. And that's something that, um, (laughs) I've talked to Elliot about trying to, we've tried a little bit, but I haven't made much progress there. Uh, I'm bad at switching off for sure. Um, always have been. And it's, it's worse actually now that uh, I have a business as a poker player. It was hard to switch off, but when you run a business, you actually just can keep doing things. I guess with poker, you can keep studying on your phone, but, but, but like it's different with a business. There are always more things to do and always like you can think of ideas um, and you can do respond to messages that you forgot to respond to, respond to emails. There there are so many things to do that it is really hard for me to switch off. And um yeah, it's something I need to work on quite a bit because uh it's not it's not that it's draining me. I'm I'm fine, but I'm not, you know, giving my family all of myself uh during those hours, which uh is not really fair to them. So I I need to get better at at switching off for sure.
1: And what about the days off? You have the same problem in days off as well. Yeah. 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 No days off. <laughs> yeah. Because I was just wondering, you know, the, the Galphon challenge, you have a day off, like two days off a week, they're obviously apart. How did your day off look like? I mean, surely you were not just chilling and drinking. That's that's obvious. But um No.
0: Uh so what what we agreed to is basically the My family gets me one full day a week. So um, I think with ah, maybe all the challenges, we would usually take Wednesday and Sundays off. And uh, Wednesdays is when I would do run at once work and study. And Sundays, I would not do any of that. I would just be with the family. So Sundays were the official day off. Um, But of course, you know, your mind's still going. You still respond to emails on your phone and things like that.
1: Right. And what about... The schedule because you you had to wake up at six in the morning every day. Um, did you maintain a consistent schedule
0: or did you struggle to to keep it consistent? I did. Uh, at the very beginning, I struggled a little bit, but now I kept it consistent and it was not. I mean, it was hard in that I f- I feel like actually one hour would have helped a lot because mm-hmm. I would, like get up at six sometimes six thirty, and I, and like I always felt rushed to. St- Get to the 8 a.m. start, uh, so I think a little bit more time would have been good to wake up a little bit more. But of course, you know, my opponents in Europe have have uh, the problem on the other end where mm. they're staying up late to play, and you know, it's pros and cons to each. Um, and I, I did like, I, I don't know, I would, f- I, I didn't feel quite ready usually at the start, but I was tired by the end. So had we gone, had we gone an hour, pushed it an hour back, I don't know how it would have done at the end of the sessions. Yeah. And were you always
1: maintaining sort of a, a strict, not, not a strict, but a consistent schedule or were you more of a typical poker player who who is all over the place with a sleeping schedule?
0: Up until about three years ago, I was always all over the place. Uh, no schedule whatsoever. Um, usually, you know, going to bed at, I mean, like 5, 6 a.m. and sleeping until 2 p.m. and stuff like that. But um, I it's, it's gone back and forth. Cause like when it's world series poker time or I'm playing poker for a month, I'm, I lose my schedule, but, uh, outside of that, like again, for the same reasons, because, um, because Marwan's poker is headquartered in Malta. And if I want to have meetings with those guys, it's gotta be early in my morning. Um, actually like initially when, when we first started and got the office out there, it was late at night. I would stay up late um, and they would wake up early and I, and that's when we'd have our meetings. But, um, for the last couple of years it's been, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean eight AM meetings usually sometimes earlier. So yeah. I've been on a pretty good schedule on and off, but but for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And actually once our son was born, well once once he started sleeping through the night, then like, yeah, that's what actually what solidified the schedule is Yeah. To, you know, yeah. Get up in the morning with him. I was about to say uh, that thing because yeah. it
1: obviously happened to me as well because yeah. now going to sleep late is no longer a thing because not you know, option, you, you're, you're getting that wake-up call <laughs> if you, whether you want it or not. Yeah. It's
0: coming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Vancouver too, we were in a, I mean, it wasn't a small apartment by Vancouver standards, but it's, it's smaller than our house here, certainly, and our bedroom was right next to his bedroom, just separated by a sliding glass door. So, like you, you heard everything. So, mm. yeah, there was no sleeping in. Oh well. How are you?
1: How do you like that? Actually, how 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 are you enjoying really your schedule? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, uh, the the son. Fatherhood? being, Like, yeah. yeah. How old is he now? He's uh, like about about months a like sixteen year or and a half. Uh, yeah. 17. 17 months.
0: All right. So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing I mean, it's, age. It's so cool. It, yeah. Yeah. It's very fun. And uh, I mean, there are just new things that, you know, every month, every couple of weeks is just new things that he's learned. Um, right. It's a very fun age uh, so far. It seems like it keeps getting more fun, though, uh, you know, so far. I guess, like, I guess once he started walking, it gets, it gets a little harder. But, uh, hmm. but it, yeah, it keeps getting more fun. Mm. for sure uh i enjoy it a lot i mean i don't do i mean i i am with him a lot i don't do the brunt of the work uh because i'm doing the brunt of other work but um you know it's it's fantastic it's it's exhausting because like i said even if i'm only you know watching him for a couple hours a day it's at the end of doing a lot of other stuff um and there's not much much downtime but uh it's you know, it's what everybody seems to say, which is that it's really hard and it's completely worth it. It's just, just
1: true. Yeah. 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 Are you already thinking about when you're going to start teaching him games? By I'll, games, I'll I mean, probably, like cards, yeah, yeah. you know, chess,
0: monopoly, whatever. I don't know. I, I guess I, so yeah, we have, we have two nieces that live here, seven and three. And I'm because I'm trying, I don't know off the top of my head when, when he'll be ready. But um, like I feel like our three-year-old niece is a little too young to to be taught any kind of serious games. I don't know if your experience is any different. Well, my, yeah, my son's I don't, I don't only know. like 21 months old right now. Months, 20, yeah.
1: yeah. The only thing Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, like, yeah, I'll definitely be teaching him games. Yeah, because I'm already kind of looking forward to... To it, because I remember my grandfather uh, used to teach me cards and uh, and chess when I was, I don't even know. I mean, like probably three, maybe maybe younger even. And I I loved it. It was just uh, yeah. You know, whenever he's back from work, um, bring out the cards. I'm sort of worried about it because uh, you know my my office is at home. So like yeah, like for yourself as well, right? And uh, yeah. you know, it's one thing to tell your wife, listen, uh, I'm working this is the office it's another thing to try to tell your you know four-year-old toddler (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh well anyway fun fun times phil let's talk about a bit um your company i feel like we we really kind of went through a a lot of the topic of galvan challenge right i uh, I'm I'm pretty happy to find out all, all these things that you talked about. Well, it's, so like, what a, it's the proper split because I've mostly been a poker player this year. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. But Run It Once poker site, right? First of all, I don't I don't think we need to go into too much detail about the things that you already extensively talked about, about your ideas. Why did you get into this, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And I think most people who at least read up about it, all support you, and all think, well, this is a great initiative, and it's great to see you taking it on yourself to basically give a poker site for poker players by poker players. It's a great idea. Now, there's a lot of a lot of challenges ahead for poker industry. And today, in fact, you you made a post on Twitter. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? Like, what do you think are the challenges facing the online poker industry from the poker players' perspective? Right. And yeah, yeah. So let's just let's just go there, and we'll see
0: where this leads us. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is in order. Uh, first is uh, AI botting, uh, real-time assistance software. The second is. Um, as good players get better, as uh, they become more and more good players, the uh, recreational players are losing faster and more consistently. And the third problem, um, or I should say threat, not necessarily problem. The, the first two are problems and threats. The third is more of a threat than a problem, but um, you know, the regulatory environment, you don't know what's going to happen two years from now, what countries are going to ban poker or make it like regulated and make it impossible to actually run a poker site there, things like that. Uh, that's, that's more of the unknown threat. I think the most unknown threat. Um, I, I mean, I guess, so botting is kind of the, the obvious, it's obvious why that's a threat. Um, I think the, the loss rates of recreational players is maybe a little bit less obvious um to to people who are not at least not pros but um I mean, essentially when you have a when you have a very high loss rate uh compared to standard deviation you're going to lose very consistently you can run you know variance calculators and i think a lot of people don't realize you know when you're sitting at a six max table with one recreational player and you're winning four big blinds per 100. He's he's not losing four big blinds per 100. He's everybody everybody else, you know, he's losing the 20 that everybody else is making if you're all at, and then also the rake that you know, your actual win rate's not four, it's it's whatever, let's say 6 and you pay two big blinds in rake. So like that's all coming from him. Uh, so you have a, a modest four big blind win rate. Um, And that means that, you know, he's, what is he losing? 30 big blinds per hundred there. And that's actually like a pretty, I mean, actually that oftentimes it's worse than that. Um, That's a like pretty conservative scenario, even for, for a, you know, pure recreational player uh, at mid to high stakes. And yeah, when you're losing 30 big blinds per hundred at a game that has a, I don't know, 150 big blinds uh, per hundred standard deviation, and you play for four hours, like, you're going to lose a lot. And the, you know, people that play for fun, like, people play blackjack, people play slots, people play roulette. And they know, most of them, that they're not a favorite, that in the long run, if they play, you know, a million hands of blackjack, they're going to lose, unless you're counting cards. Um, But... They still win a lot. You know, they're the house edge in some of those games is 3%. And, you know, they still come away with a lot of winning days. They they can do some like, you know, betting things to to chase losses and actually have more winning days and losing days. Um, but in poker, even if they come in knowing that they're an underdog to to pros, it still becomes a lot less fun if they lose seven out of eight days or uh like 12 out of 12 months um, because that's, what's going to happen if if they're playing any like decent volume um, over the course of a month with, with that kind of loss rate, they're just almost always going to lose. And it, when, when the recreational players stop having fun, they find another recreational activity uh, to do. And uh, that, that that's really bad for poker uh, for obvious reasons. So I think that, You know, 15 years ago, uh, pro win rates were higher often, but recreational loss rates were lower. It's because the ratio of pros to recs has gone up and up. Um, So yeah, uh, all that to say, it's in the best interest of online poker as a whole to uh, reduce these loss rates or increase standard deviation and variance to a point where um, yeah, where, where, where recreational players are having fun and, and having more winning experiences more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people equate that with um, meaning that I want pros to win less, but um, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. It often means the opposite. It, it means that their deposits are lasting longer and therefore there are more of them in the player pool. And it means they redeposit more often, and therefore there are even more of them in the player pool. So, yeah, you you would be winning less from each individual one per individual session, but um, but on the whole, it's a good thing for the economy, and it's not an easy thing to figure out uh, how to do that as as you know, a, an operator, how to structure the game in that way. And actually, we have some some interesting ideas that I'm very excited about um, that actually get to see a little bit of when we launch our sit and goes um to combat things like that but um yeah i think that's a very big threat that a lot of people don't think about uh however i still put botting above that in the number one spot um because i think that then that's the threat everybody is talking about uh because it's a, you know it's scary mm-hmm. um poker is you know 10 years ago or actually i don't know how many years ago but you know the a certain number of years ago during the course of my career the there were still players who could beat the best bots. Um, that's not the case anymore. Uh, the best, you know, the best bot is unbeatable. It doesn't matter how good you are uh, of a player. You just can't beat it. Um, and so that, that makes it all the more scary. It was already scary when, you know, mid stakes, six max games on certain networks were, you know, had a lot of bots and they're just taking money out of the economy, but they weren't, they weren't like necessarily even better than the the good players in those pools. They were just, you know, taking some of the money out. And so, yeah, it's get, it gets scarier and scarier as, as you know, we've reached, I don't know how many years ago, let's say five years ago. And in a lot of game types uh, that computers are better than humans. Um, uh, Don't quote me on the exact years. It depends on the game. Um, And so I, our philosophy at run at once and kind of mine personally is that these tools are only going to get more advanced. Um, not necessarily in the way that they play because it's kind of already solved uh, you know, to, to the, to the extent that, that it kind of matters, they might get slightly better, but it kind of doesn't matter at this point. There's, are so much better than humans. It doesn't matter. But um, you know, obviously they have a lot of incentive to the developers who are, who are creating bots or the people that are hiring them too, and then running them have a lot of incentive financially to keep staying a step ahead of detection methods and and prevention methods and things like that. And, uh, you know, things like no matter what you do with, with hand histories, they, they can scrape the screen. There are ways that they can get the data that they need to, to access uh, all that information. There's nothing you can do to 100% prevent it from happening. Um, so what we've always believed and what I've always believed is that you you have to attack it with a combination of uh, prevention, uh, deterrence, annoyances, and then, of course, detection and punishment. Um, and what most sites do is the... Well, some sites don't even bother with the, like, the actual prevention. Um, but I guess at this point, it's not as big a deal. But like you know, a lot of sites you get instant hand history downloads and uh, like even like have the chat box where it's actively telling you what the cards are. That makes it a little easier, but uh, that's not a huge barrier anyways these days. Um, But uh, a lot of sites focus on detection, which is super important. A lot of sites, uh, especially the major sites do very well. Um, Not a lot of sites focus on um, kind of creating these deterrents and annoyances that, uh, that we've tried to create at run with our cache games. Um, the, the primary way that we do that currently, although we have a lot of ideas, uh, is, is a splash pot in our cache games, which, uh, as you know, uh, will will drop varying amounts of uh, essentially anties in PLO, their dead anties into the pot, and, and they can be any number of chips through uh, one in a thousand. I mean, the way we we build them is that the they'll maybe only be one of eight numbers at a given time, but we can always change what those numbers are. Um, so does that prevent botting? Absolutely not. No, um, but it, it makes it so that that bots that are running on other networks can't just you know plug and play into ours and um, uh, because it's going to encounter formats that it hasn't seen before. And um, I think that uh, I'm not at all, claiming that uh, we've solved the problem because far from it. Um, But I think that we've... I think that what Splash the Pot is, um, which again, like we've done some other things, but that's the main thing so far, is a very good example of the kind of thing that that needs to be done, um, along with all the other methods that other sites are doing. Because... As uh, as good as a site's detection can be, um, if the stakes get high enough and the uh, incentives get high enough, um, you know, uh, it can always be done in some way. And that's, that's scary. I don't mean to paint a grim picture because I do think that for the most part, bots are not a threat that are going to kill online poker. I think some people disagree. I don't think they're going to kill online poker, but they're a threat that's here to stay. Um, there's never going to be a pure 100% solution. Um, and so what what sites have to do, and uh, with sometimes the help of the community, is um, is limit their, um, well, <laughs> essentially limit the number of them and limit their ability to succeed, um, punish effectively, um, do things like if if... I mean, just yeah, a lot of active investigations, things like that. Um, you just try to make it as as unprofitable as possible, or less profitable, uh, least amount profitable. I can't find my words, but uh, but you get the idea. Yeah, um, and try to stay a step ahead of them technologically and with game structures and things like that. Um, and I've talked to um, Rob Young a lot, uh, Party Poker about it, and he. Uh, it's pretty clear that he views it as uh, also the biggest threat, and they have a lot of ideas, uh, some that he's shared with me, and some that I'm sure he hasn't to, uh he's, he's working on solutions too, um, not only in detection, they, they have good uh, detection as far as I understand, but also um, some game structure things. Um, what he and I have both uh, discussed and found is that uh, when you change a game structure, you get a lot of resistance from the community. Uh, and we found that with splash the pot a lot of players uh like and surprisingly a lot of pros more than recreational players the recreational players for the most part didn't care uh they enjoyed the game structure change, but actually it's i think specifically a lot of the um the kind of uh the pros who have modest win rates who are grinding it out uh to earn a living it's the fear of the unknown they it's not what they've studied. And they don't know what's going to happen to their win rate in these games that they've, you know, played fans at the games that they play on other sites over the last couple of years. And they know what, they know what they're earning there. Um, I think there's, there's a fear of the unknown that it keeps a lot of people from playing. And uh, while, while I'm not saying you have to come play it run at once uh, I would encourage the community to, to, to be a little more open um to, to all, all these sites, when they when they try to implement changes that uh, you know are there for the express purpose of preserving the future uh, of online poker, um, because I, I do think that it is going to require, especially at higher stakes, it's going to require game structure changes, and not just not just changing it to one new game, but actually over time consistently uh, introducing new game structures um, to try to stay a step ahead. Now, all that said, um, I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, the way a lot of these, uh, solvers or bots are built, they can learn new game structures as well, uh, with, without that much time. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think that like as a poker player, uh, Getting, having an idea of like what aspects you have to get creative and think of things to introduce that kind of take the human mind to to figure out. And, uh, you know, the like the kind of game structure equivalent of like a CAPTCHA, where it's things that are easier for the human brain to process than for a computer. And um, it's not easy to do, but I, I do think that there are. There are options and opportunities over time to 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 make games tougher to bot, or perhaps like lower edge to bot, and mm. combining that with prevention, detection, punishment uh, can can limit their effectiveness. I said a whole lot, so I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll take a break and let you speak. Right. Yeah, I want to touch upon some of the things that you've
1: you've mentioned here, and um, let's talk. About Well, one thing that is easiest to address is what you've mentioned about uh, the regs are the most resistant to, well, basically resistant to change because, mm-hmm. well, there's, there's a part that, like you said, uh, a lot of people would feel they invested so much time in studying and now they, um, you know, get that yeah. taken away from them from one yeah. part. But a, a lot of that, I feel, is just a sense of entitlement. You know, a lot of poker players... perhaps seem to be under the impression that somehow the games run for them uh you know especially you see it acutely when you go to vegas or any casino really in live games you know you you would see all these uh regs who let's face it are gonna play wherever the game runs if the game is good they're just gonna play it right yet they constantly pose a lot of will give a lot of trouble to the floor managers, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. They're not really the customer. They're just going to, you know, they're going to do what they have to do. And that's the key part. Yeah. You ha- As a professional, you have to do what you have to do. You have to select the games. You have to, in a live setting, you have to be sociable because if you're not, well, the game is not going to run. In an online world, perhaps you have to be thinking slightly longer term because the things that you've just illustrated, you know, the the threats that we're facing, the reality is if nobody does anything, well, then, you know, whether you like it or not as a poker player, you're not going to have a job. If nobody does anything, well, then it's going to be taken away from you once and for all, basically, right? So what's more important is what do the recreational players want how do we figure that out i mean you guys are obviously trying to trying to understand the mind of the recreational poker player but because in the beginning you said that you know a lot of people would be recreational blackjack players or recreational poker players a key difference there is even if, if um, you know you're losing in both settings, you're losing in the blackjack, you're losing in poker, the reality of blackjack is such, you know you're, you have a house edge or the house has an edge and um, that's about it and that explains mm-hmm. everything. So you know you're gonna get in there and the game is not in your favor and you're gonna lose and it's all good. If you play poker, you basically lose because you're worse than the other guys. And if, like you were saying, you know, if you lose like 17 days, eight days, nine days, 20 days in a row, well, you're just bad. And it's yeah, it's, it's not, not a pleasant thing. It's not fun. I mean, a
0: lot of people who play poker or, or who play these games in general, even if they play a losing game like blackjack or slots, like uh, a lot of them have a competitive spirit uh, of sorts. And, and the element in poker is going to attract even more people with a competitive spirit. And if you crush their competitive spirit, because it's just, you know, they they are just so clearly outmatched and uh, and losing so often and they never get, it doesn't take much, you know, like, uh, and I guess this is me uh, projecting a little bit or making assumptions, but, you know, I, I believe that it doesn't take much. You know, you have a losing day, you have a losing week but two days that week you won. And on one of those days, you hero called the river with King high and you were right against a tough player. Like you only, you, you need some moments, but you don't, I mean, you don't need all, all of the moments to go your way. You don't need half the moments to go your way. You just need some winning moments and some experiences where that given day or that given hand you won. You, you were the better player for that hand. Um, I think that's, I think you do need that. Uh, absolutely. I don't really blame um I don't blame players for advocating for the things that they want, even if they're pros. Um, and actually, I do think one one key element here that I think uh, is kind of a common misconception is that a lot of the players who play relatively high volume and this includes a lot of people in the, you know, like poker, in poker forums and on, you know, poker social media and and interacting with people. Um, and you know, a lot of your higher volume players, a lot of those players are small losers over the course of time. Um, I think people tend to view it as like, there are these players who get crushed and then there are all these pros and there's a, there's a large chunk of players who, are near break even, or are, you know, two big blind losers over time um, who love the game. And, you know, some of them then become winning players. A lot of them do because a lot of people in that category are really passionate about the game and, uh, and, you know, work on their game and care about it and spend a lot of time on it. But a lot of them don't also. And so you do have a lot of these players who are kind of feel like the same part of the community as what you consider you know uh, top pros to be um but are actually you know a significant portion of the economy because y- if you have a guy who's losing two big blinds per 100 compared to this guy who loses 30 big blinds per 100 but plays 200 hands a month and this guy losing two big blinds per 100 is playing 25,000 hands a month uh, you know indefinitely like those players actually mean a lot to the economy mm-hmm. um and so it's it's important to listen to and actually usually they want the same kind of things that the pros want um and that's actually one of the like i feel like one of the things i've found most is i think actually it's those players and the and the small winners who are the ones who have been resistant uh and who have reacted really well to some of the things some of the changes we made like introducing uh, the legends program which is In addition to splash the pot uh but a more traditional reward system where the more you play you level up and you you get cash prizes um or bonuses or whatever you want to call them and then we just introduced leaderboards uh just this well by the time this airs i don't know but um but very recently um and it does seem like so it is hard to kind of parse all the the opinions that come in um But I guess my only point there is that reaching the—I mean, you—you should try to reach all of your player types. But Mm -hmm. some of the things that the pros are arguing for um, are things that 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 losing players want Um, to, but it's just not not the pure recreationals necessarily. And so it's important to listen to everybody, absolutely. But kind of where I personally draw the line and like not listening is, you know, something that is going to very obviously, obvious to me, uh, like harm the, the game long-term or like the, 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 health of the games long-term or something that anything that would, you know, approach unfair an unfair or unlevel playing field. Those are the things that I kind of don't listen to, but otherwise we, we listen to, to everybody. And, um, it is harder to reach the, the pure recreational players because most of, the, most of the people who join our Discord or who we see posting on social media or on forums are going to be in that category of somewhere between pro and small loser. Um, and the, the pure recreationals are not going to be like, yeah, you're, it's harder to reach them. Um, and they're not in our networks uh, necessarily, but we try. Uh, we try
1: yeah, the problem of, you know, resistance to change, it's it's a human problem. It's yeah. not a problem specific to regs or recreational players. And uh, I realized, you know, when I sort of started with my question, when I said, well, you know, regs always feel entitled, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like it might be misunderstood because it, I definitely don't say that we shouldn't speak up as regs mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't I be ask. listened to. We absolutely have to, but we have to be a bit more open-minded right because i feel like oftentimes the discussion is very one sided the regs just push the the narrative of no we're not making these concessions this is bullshit you're not going to do these yeah. changes we hate it well let's yeah. have a discussion about it you know if if you really hate it after all the discussion after weighing all the pluses and minuses sure we can listen to it but you know i think like as a community there's a big part of our community that are just not open to a dialogue of any sort of changes because one of the things that kind of makes it difficult for poker players and poker sites to cooperate on some issues is because of this constant perception that a group of like a a big portion of our community has that poker sites do everything just to increase their rake that that is the problem you know whatever poker sites come up with it's always first of all perceived oh you guys are Clearly, you're just doing it you know for for your own good, which is not always the case. It's tough. It's tough because you know, poker players think sites are trying to get everything in their favor. They only care about the profits, which is not necessarily the case. Yes, you I mean, as a poker site, you're supposed to care about your profits, yeah. but part of your profits is making sure that you have a business five, ten years from now. So you need to obviously take care of of the community. And somehow that is lost on many poker players because they think like, well, too short term of like, uh, they're they're just doing this because of
0: X. I think that, I mean, I think Stars is very interesting because the previous owners, uh, I mean, it's my understanding that they actually did sometimes sacrifice Company profits for the good of poker community, which you could certainly argue paid dividends uh, for them as they mm-hmm. kind of were the most popular site, uh, the players' favorites for a long time. And I think while while you know most businesses or maybe all of them are primarily concerned with the success of their business, I think there's a big differentiate differentiation between those which are. I guess the important part is is figuring out if they are concerned about the long term uh, or if they're short sighted either because they haven't thought it through or because maybe they have another plan that that involves them. And, and I do think that PokerStars um like when we launched on it once it was uh the idea came from being nervous that PokerStars was too worried about the short term and um and had a long-term plan of kind of getting, you know, pushing more players away from poker um, to casino to sports, uh, and then creating poker games that are kind of more like casino games where nobody's really winning. Um, it hasn't gone as far as I was as I feared it would. Fortunately for the poker world, but um, but yeah, I, th- I think that you know it's very possible, especially with all the threats facing online poker. It's definitely possible that a site thinks, you know what. Poker in ten years just is not going to be here. So let's let's make what we can now and get out. Um, and I, I I feared that that's what poker PokerStars was thinking. I don't know if they were. I don't know if they are. Um, but yeah, I think that like I I can speak for us and I can speak for uh, all the conversations I've had with Rob Young at Party Poker. Uh, we care about the future uh, of of online poker and, and about creating a level playing field and about um, you know what's good for the players. Um, and I don't know that they I don't necessarily know that every decision that I'm not vouching for every decision they make indefinitely. Um, but I know that his his heart's in the right place for sure. Hmm. Well, I
1: mean, time will tell how the yeah. show is going to play out because. Uh, I mean, let's face it, technology made huge leaps. Uh, you know, nowadays some of the th- threats that are out there uh, seemed like they're not going to be here for years to come and yet, you know, we are already battling them and uh yeah. who knows what's going to happen a few years from now. I I think first,
0: yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'll go. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some reason to be optimistic. Um, you know, solvers have have been around for quite a while, but I'm, I'm thinking back to like, guess I don't know what year it was, but like university bot teams were making heads up no limit bots. I mean, I remember talking to a team, I feel like it was 10 years ago and they had a bot that was as good as top players. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ability and, and and that's as good as top players. There have been bots that can beat, you know, mid stakes six max games um, for a very long time. Um, And bots that, you know, can beat top players for a reasonably long time. And poker's not dead yet, certainly. Um, I think that it'll continue to advance, but actually in some ways, I think we've kind of hit the, the, the peak, like they they can't improve strategically uh, from this point, or at Mm -hmm. least not, not in any substantial way. So, you know, if we survive the next few years, and I think it's been that way for a few years and yeah, like basically what I'm saying is, I don't, with certainty, know why the situation's not worse than it is, but poker, you know, is still healthy. Online poker is still healthy, still beatable at all levels. Mm -hmm. And these threats have been there. And, um, you know, it's a testament to how well the sites have done, um, at least some of the sites, uh, combating them. But I I don't think that we're in a situation like 10 years. We're not in a situation. We're 10 years from now. Bots are, you know, much better strategically than they are now. the, the advancements may come in avoiding detection, um, but the the advancements on this on the side of the operators will will come in detection as well, and you know try to keep pace with them. So th- that's a reason I think to be optimistic uh, mm-hmm. that if 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 bots getting good enough to beat people meant that that it was the end or the end was near for online poker. I think the end would already be here. Yeah. Um, And it's not. Yeah. Another
1: thing to be optimistic about, and uh, I agree with you on what you just said, and I -hmm. I think clearly, you know, we haven't experienced the the end of poker as many people predicted. Um, Mm -hmm. But another aspect to be optimistic, I compare it to chess in some way when the deep blue came into Mm -hmm. the picture, everybody, well, a lot of people thought, well, this is the end. There was a lot of resistance from the chess community of, okay, well, there's, you know, the romantic idea of a chess player is that because nowadays, you know, the study techniques change, et cetera, et cetera. Did uh, Did it make the game worse or did it make it better? I would argue that it made it better because, you know, if we think about, sure, you know, a chess player from 60, 70 years ago could still compete with a chess player of modern age. But in some formats of chess, you know, if we think about like bullet games or or some other types, they probably are not even like, it's, it, it's not possible. They're not there because the study techniques are completely different. So I think the same is likely to happen with poker. You know, we going to, and you are a prime example of this. You know, you stepped away for a while from actively playing poker. You stepped away, f- well, you didn't actively study with solvers. All the other people were sort of, mm-hmm. you know, getting at it. And then you challenged some of the top people and we discussed it. You know, the, the top qualities that are important remain yeah. the same. What it used to be 10 years ago, what it is now. And it's going to remain true for quite a while because like you said, especially for PLO, where nobody's close to playing GTO right now, and even with better study techniques, because of the complexity of the game, your human mind or any mind is not going to be able... Likewise, it's not able in chess. Like, we have all yeah. these chess engines which play a completely different game to what a human being can, uh, can execute. Yet, yeah. there's so much to learn from those chess engines and so much to learn in a way of simplifying the concepts, uh, simplifying the ideas and implementing it in your decision making process, not memorizing, memorizing yeah. the, you know, the, the ranges or the situations or the bet sizes is gonna only get you so far and that's not very far at all.
0: Yeah. No, I'm like one of the things with the challenge and with kind of the future of myself as a poker player. Is um, I'm hopeful that like I'd like to keep working on my game and keep playing, um, as to kind of prove that, uh, that it like I know what I'm saying, working on my game, and I have studied solvers, but I haven't studied anywhere near you know any anybody that's playing it uh professionally in the in the you know 2550 zoom pool or higher, um in terms of hours, like not even close. And so I don't know, I, I, I don't necessarily need to need to beat everybody, but I, but I, I do feel I've kind of already proved and would like to continue proving that that solvers don't kill the game. They don't make like the game is still the game. And um, it's not about kind of what I feared it was about. It's not about memorization and, and who studies the hardest is going to come out on top necessarily, uh, poker, still poker. And, uh, I like to, to, uh, kind of, th- that's actually a big motivating factor for me to to keep playing and keep playing tough opponents, uh, over time mm. to, uh, to kind of, uh, yeah. Well, ho- and then hopefully if I do that and I say that to the world, uh, that that's proof that it's not just about studying, they'll believe me. Good. Cause, mm. Cause they might just think, Oh, well, Phil just studied harder than all of them. So. Right. right.
1: <laughs> But also, you know, when we say studying, it's such a broad word, you know, just because somebody spends 60 hours a week on a solver Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're actually learning things that they can implement in game, right? Sure, maybe if you play one table, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you have, you always use your time bank or whatever. You know, but in reality, for like the the translation of just looking at the solutions, browsing solutions and going through all these ideas, trying to memorize and actually implementing them, there's quite a gap for that mm-hmm. to happen, so just the number of hours that's not what matters is the quality of the hours you spend
0: yeah, no i one thing um. Uh, and actually, I don't, I don't know uh, about either Action Freak or VD, their their study methods or or their tools. But I do know that a lot of top players out there have custom tools um, that they use to study. And I know a lot of players who I respect believe that, uh, like winning, good players that I respect believe that that's like, if if you don't have some, if you don't have something that's not publicly available and you're playing against these guys who do that you don't have a chance. And I, 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 I don't, I don't have anything that's not publicly available. I don't use anything that's not publicly available. And I know that, you know, I, I, there's a lot of variants in heads up PLO. I didn't beat either of those guys decisively at all. Um, but I can at least compete. Uh, I think I proved that. Um, and I, and I, again, I don't know what they haven't, uh, and what they don't, but I know a lot of the players out there, yeah I have have tools that that I don't have access to, and I wouldn't say that it doesn't matter but i I certainly don't think that uh that it that it matters that much um i just i think there's a lot more to it even if you have better study tools than uh than your opponent it poker's still poker mm-hmm. and i firmly believe that mm-hmm. exactly
1: especially you know when we talked in the beginning of our conversation about the key traits or the key things that the mm-hmm. qualities that that you need as a poker player um, memory was not one of the top ones you know having you know notes and whatever is not part of it you still make decisions you still have to reason things out and especially for a game like PLO it's too complex for any tool to substitute
0: the process of actually having a good decision making process right so i think i mean maybe there's maybe if somebody has you know photographic memory that is just insane maybe there's a point at which memory becomes super valuable but uh at any reasonable <laughs> memory strength uh yeah i don't think it's a big factor
1: yeah and one thing okay let's imagine perfect photographic memory uh not only do you have to have that you also have to couple it with being able to figure things out it's just because you yeah. remember something because again we're playing if the you know if you, you were striving to play just purely gto without trying to adapt to your opponent or trying to exploit well that's one way to go about it but that's probably not the most efficient way to go about it yeah. anyway so just memorizing things and uh, in reality, for people who are striving to to memorize, uh, they're probably slowing thems- themselves down. They're obviously yeah. really talented in the way that they can process this information, but they probably could have done it more efficiently in a way trying to distill the, the concepts out of the information that they're otherwise memorizing, trying to understand why instead of you know trying to memorize what exactly to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well said.
1: Oh well, Phil. Um, what else? What else? I mean, I feel like we covered some really, really important topics. I talked a lot. I don't usually talk this much, but uh, you, g- well, you gave me some open-ended topics. Yeah, I did. I did, but some important topics, and yeah, I really appreciate that you, you know, shared shared these things uh, with us and. Uh, I think there's almost like two parts to the conversation, you know, the one yeah. part, which is going to be, I hope very useful for a lot of people to yeah. inspirational and useful uh, in their own careers. And the other part is an important part. It touches all of us, everybody who plays poker recreationally, professionally, um, you know, it is what we need to be thinking about What's the future of the poker and I don't think we can thank you enough for doing what you're doing. You know, with oh, the promotion you, of babe. PLO, especially like from from my perspective, you doing this, man. I mean, all of a sudden you you bring PLO on uh, on the radar. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a great thing and getting and the, the respect it deserves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the site, you know, and all of these initiatives and um, yeah, it's it's just so great. It's uh, it's incredible and. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Keep keep doing it, man. And and good I luck. Will. Good luck with the rest of the challenges. When do you know anything
0: about when you guys are restarting? No, actually. So, um, uh, for the moment I'm stuck in the US, I've actually spoken with uh, Chance about playing our match on um, wsop.com potentially. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken with them about it as well, and it seems like it might be an option he's very busy right now. So I'm kind of, I'm waiting for him to lock in a date. Um, and that will probably be my next match. And then after that, uh, we'll depend. I mean, hopefully soon after that, can I uh, take a trip uh, up to Canada or down to Mexico and, and play some of the other challenges and, and mm-hmm. knock those out. I'm also talking to Brandon Adams cause ours, our challenge will be live. Uh, and so we've discussed that, but again, don't have any plans. I don't think, what is it? June? End of June. I don't, I don't think I'll have anything in, um, uh, I won't have anything in July. and probably not in August either. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a little break in the action. Oh, well. I'm not happy about it, but it is what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure everybody's going to be waiting for the restart. And uh, yeah. Well, Phil, thanks again. I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. And Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. That's a good yeah. talk. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally, where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to Runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.